Speaking of Shell Force, um, Shell Black, I think he single-handedly provides more valuable information and free help to the Salesforce world than any other person or company, including like these $100 million consulting companies. I mean, have you seen his content he puts out? Yeah. I For I, free. For free. I gave him two two articles myself. I know. Yeah, you're, that's right. You're a contributor. Yep. Um, yeah, his blog posts are like, are great. And he's been doing those for years. And he started this, and I just, I peeked into one little session of his whiteboard thing he does, which are, they're just, I guess they're pre-recorded, right? Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, recorded in, in like a studio of some sort. But there are these things where he stands in front of white whiteboard and just gives you this like awesome lesson on these really hard earned, you know, what am I trying to say? Hard earned um, lessons about Salesforce. Yeah, I think it's a great concept. I I, I like the whole whiteboard concept. I, I think it's a great name for the show and everything. And he's like me. Whenever whenever we're at a client site or something and we're having to describe something to them, I like being up the whiteboard. And that's that's the first thing Shell does when he when he's at a client site. He goes straight to the whiteboard and he starts drawing stuff. And the client's talking and we're talking and we're all talking specifics. And he's just kind of noodling on the board and everything. And before you know it, he's got something worked out. And I think it's I think it's pretty awesome to make a video about that and and just start putting it out there because I think you learn a lot from it. Yeah, I do too. And and he's one of these guys that, you know, he's he's really smart. He's been doing Salesforce for 10 years, you know, helping small and medium businesses, you know, adopt, you know, deploy, adopt Salesforce. Um, and he's really good at teaching and talking. And he's really, he's a really, you know, this great like interpersonal skills. And he's just like one of these guys that, you know, when you're talking to him, you're just like, oh man, I, you know, this is this guy. He's like an easiest guy to talk to in the world. And he's good at explaining these things, which is probably why he's so successful. Um, but yeah, these, I mean, he's just, he gives all the stuff away for free, for totally for free, which, you know, come totally has come back to him though. It's, you know. Yeah, he, it turned him um, an MVP. Well, not only that, which by the way, he's like the MVP of MVPs in my opinion. He actually deserves that title, unlike most of these jerks who are just cheerleaders for Salesforce, sycophants. He actually deserves that. I mean, he is helping peop, you know, just massive amounts of people for free that he doesn't even know. But it's not all altruistic, right? Because he gets, he's gotten a ton of business for, um, from his website because he's, he's got so much Google juice from his website now, from all this valuable content he's got. Um, that he, gets, he gets inbound you know, requests all the time. But that's the way you're supposed to do the web, right? That's how SEO works. That's how valuable content and Google and the search engines work. Right. And whether he totally knew that or not, I have no idea. But it doesn't matter because it totally works for him. Yeah, I agree. Is that anyway. your, your long definition of shell force? Oh, no, I was just saying. He needs to, <laughs> if, he hasn't, if he hasn't registered shell force in, in Twitter and a domain name, then he should. Because he is now officially shell force. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna change all my input incoming calls from him, and it'll just say Shell Force on it. Anyway, we're, so we're talking about Shell Black. I don't think we said his name, Shell Black. Shell Black. Shellblack.com. Yep. He could be yeah. our first sponsor. How about that? He should be. <laughs> damn it. This has been. This has been like a. Uh, how where are we? This has been a five minute ad for Shellblack.com. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna send him an invoice. <laughs> <laughs> oh anyway yeah i just i saw his some white one of the most recent whiteboards and i hadn't watched any other ones but i just poked into the most recent one and skipped around a little bit and it's just it seemed like it was pretty darn good 
Yeah, mm-hmm. I think they're pretty valuable, and I, I hope he gets to see more traction on those. He's a, I know he just booked the studio. I'm not sure when he's doing it, but I know he's doing it pretty soon. He's doing another series. So, so what's on our topic list for tonight? Well, I was going to do the cheesy thing, and I'm going to do it anyways. Okay, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say I hear something off in the distance. <laughs> I hear God. it. It's coming. Could it? Could it? Could it be Santa Claus? No. It's an Amazon drone. An Amazon drone? An Amazon drone. Okay. Those are the sounds we're going to be listening for. I'm not going to hear the, the UPS guy drive up to my door anymore. And my, my, my office is right by the, our, the front of our house. So when the UPS guy comes, he's got his music blaring or, or whatever he's listening to. And I know it's him. Comes rushing up to the door, pops our, blocked, our box down. I hear it. and um, He walks. pops your box? What? <laughs> <laughs> he plops our box down, whatever, oh. whatever we ordered, whatever it is, he, he just tosses it down and, uh, occasionally he'll ring the doorbell. Sometimes he won't, sometimes he'll just toss it and leave it there. <laughs> I don't think he knows I'm here listening to everything he does, but, um, but yeah, that, that could change. What do you think about Amazon potentially using drones now? Well, I think Jeff Bezos is taking a chapter out of Mark Benioff's book and it, this is nothing but PR. I don't know. I mean, he's got working prototypes and everything. It's not just PR. I mean, there's a lot of logistics to work out. And as soon as the announcement came out, everyone was thinking of ways that they could steal someone's package, you know, shoot the thing out of the air or or it malfunction and drop and hit someone's car or hit someone on the head and all the liability of that. Um, you know, where do you deploy from? Who's driving them? Who's not? Can they be tapped by NSA for surveillance and all those kind of things? So there, there's a lot of concern over them. And not to mention, it's still got to go through um, FAA, FAA approval to even get up in the air. Yeah, you can just see the headline, drone collides into 747, <laughs> mid-air collision. I guess, I guess in theory, it might save them some time and money. They park their van somewhere and launch a bunch of drones and it goes, canvases the neighborhood and starts dropping off packages, but... Oh, short distance. Yeah, I didn't think about that. So you drive, you drive, you know, a dozen drones out to a neighborhood, then you just you fire yeah, them yeah. Off you and, just have the drone set up with with pre programmed everything, you know, GPS and everything. You drive them to the location. Obviously, you wouldn't want a central hub of a bunch of drones flying out there. You would actually package them up, put them in the truck, take them to a neighborhood, and then just release the swarm. And you just see this swarm of drones fly up in the air and start dropping off packages. Maybe if I allow my roof to be a drone. Uh, launching base, I'll get like a my Amazon Prime for free or something. <laughs> well, you'd also have to store the package too. No, they can. They, that's fine. They can come drop the packages off. <laughs> you just allocate <laughs> part of your parking lot for packages and let the drones have at them. Yeah, yeah. But I, you know, I saw. I think they said they they think that maybe within four to five years they'll be doing this, and I would be really surprised. But who knows? I can see them doing it in a limited capacity just as a proof of concept. I don't I, I don't know. I'd like to see how that goes and see if it, it's something that could be viable. But I think more than anything, it'll just be just a, a fancy concept that gets tried out there. And again, it could just be pure PR. So is the idea to have same day deliveries? Well, these would be, from what I understand, at least the inception of it is that these would be like 30 minute deliveries for people that had to have it like really fast. But even that doesn't make sense because that only works if the distribution center is really close to you because those drones aren't really fast. Well, think about think. us. So you and I are both in the Dallas area. We have two distribution centers 
in the Dallas area. Yeah, and there's so, one really close by since I'm really near yeah, you've the got, airport. You've got one like right across the street from me, basically. Yeah. I don't know if you knew that or not. Yeah, I, I, I noticed it one day driving through. It's um, in your little town that, you're, yeah. that you live in. And so I think for me, if I needed a package really fast, then I guess they technically could release a drone from that location and get it to me pretty quickly, same day, um, if not within the hour. Because they, they already want to do, and they're experimenting with same-day deliveries in certain areas. So maybe this is just another way to do that. But Well, the other caveat is how much those things can carry. Obviously, it wouldn't be able to drop off a monitor or a huge computer. I think, I think from what I read, it was like five pounds or something like that was the limit that they were working with. Oh, so I can't drop off the, that 82-inch TV that I want? No, no. That would be cool. I think however they do it, if the same day deliveries would be cool. Because I could see right now, like, you know, if you have Prime, then two day delivery is free. Same or next day delivery is like what two ninety nine or three ninety nine. And I could see like a same day being like, you know, six ninety nine or seven ninety nine. You know, if you want it today, you know, if you pay eight bucks for it, we'll we'll get it to you today. Um, that would be cool. I you know, I wouldn't use that often, but you know, in those rare circumstances where you need uh, you're like, Oh man, I really want this now. Um you know, if you're willing to pay for it. Yeah. It'd be a nice option. Speaking of signing for packages, I got the um, iPad mini Retina. Did I tell you that? I told you that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah I've, I have not had time to use it much yet, but I did you know, turn it on and signed up my iCloud account and all that. And uh, it's nice. I mean, it's just nice to have that mini form factor with a Retina display. Because I already have a mini. Um, it's not Retina. They're, and it's a great form factor. It's perfect for reading. And um, it's significantly more portable than the full-size iPad. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, you know, so I like the form factor, but having, having Gretton is really nice. Um, so I don't know. We'll, it remains to be seen whether I use it for getting work done. And that's the argument. So, um, Andy Anotko had a nice, um, article. I think it was in the Chicago Sun Times about, um, basically how the, you know, the full, pa- full size iPads of what they now call the iPad Air, I guess. That's what you use if you're if you if you actually get work done on your iPad. If you use iPad for work, whether you're producing you know documents or I don't know programming, coding, whatever. And the iPad Mini, and now Mini Retina is mainly for consuming. Uh, I don't know that I fully agree with that, but I, I think to some degree that's probably fairly true. I mean, if I was cons- if I was producing a lot of stuff, whether I'm writing stuff or you know say I'm um, I'm sitting with a client and we're you know sketching out. UIs. What's that? What's that um, program? That app that you've got? Um, is it paper or yeah, napkin or something? It's paper. Uh, yeah, paper. Yeah. Napkin's a different one, actually. Um, but you know, yeah, that's that would be better to have. You know, you're sitting with someone sketching out a UI. I mean, I think having a full size iPad would be better for that. You're you're producing content, right? Um, right. Interesting on paper, since you brought it up, is they recently came out with a stylus um, that you can use with their program. I could see how that would make a lot of sense. That's a really cool app. I still haven't bought it. I I haven't even downloaded it. I need to I need to check that out. But uh, but yeah, um, I mainly use the iPad for consuming content. I don't think I'm, you know, when I'm ready to produce things, um, I I generally want a a laptop, a computer, a real computer. Um, I don't know that I'll ever get real comfortable producing on an iPad. At least not the way things are right now. Maybe I'm just too old. I'm just I was born. I was raised on computers, so. Yeah, I think there's a generation generational factor to some of that. Like my daughter and my son, they've grow up, they've grown up or are growing up with iPads and iPhones and and they do everything on it. They draw, they color, they write, they read. Um they do more of that stuff than they do paper and pencil. Yeah, and 
I wonder if they'll ever use what we consider a traditional computer. That Yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't be surprised if the answer is no. Um, I think there's always going to be a place for desktop computers, and there's always going to be a place for, for notebook computers, but I think that market will dwindle, and it'll be for specialties or people with very special, specific needs. I think the average person out there um, who just does browsing or just does reading or does, you know, types a few things on Word or Notepad or, or buys things. I think those guys are, are, those people are the prime target for, for the tablets. Yeah, and um, Steve Jobs had a metaphor. It was like cars and trucks, right? But of course, I think that was referring to laptops versus like Mac Pros. So right. Like, most people just need cars, right? They mm-hmm. go to work, they take their kids places, right? So they just need a car. So that's an iMac or a MacBook. And then you have people who would that make are, a MacBook Pro a sports car? And probably. That, that's actually to fit that metaphor. That's probably about right. And then people who are doing like really hardcore compiling of big code bases, or they're doing you know video rendering, compositing things like that. You know, that's what a Mac Pro. That's what he would call a truck. You know, the Mac Pro. So I, I think that's funny think though that, because a lot of people they set up a little Mac Mini as a little mini server and they run it off that. So what 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 kind of analogy is that? <laughs> Uh, is that like an El Camino? Is that their commuter? Their smart car? The little El- mini? It's an El Camino. It's a combo. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, although I'm sure that, that that analogy has Steve Jobs rolling over in his grave. I don't think he'd want any of anything he made compared to an El Camino. <laughs> you, know, you know what those are, right? Yes, I do. Those are terrible. <laughs> anyway, so so you haven't really had a chance to use it, but you've kind of played around with it and you you... I guess since you have a mini before, the main difference is probably the speed and the screen. Yeah, the screen's great, and it's I haven't done much with it, but you know it's got the it's got the same I guess A7 processor that the full size iPad has. So, you know the iPad Air and the iPad Mini Retina are identical except for the screen size. So the memory and CPU is all the same. So I haven't really had a chance to test it yet. But so this be number three iPads in your house right now. Yeah, we've got three. So we have the original iPad 1, and then we have an iPad mini that technically Brent gave to Fletcher when he was born, mm-hmm. um, but it's kind of like the family iPad, and mainly uh, Graham and I use it. Oh, so yeah, this is also my first gunmetal gray iPad, which of course they don't call it gunmetal because that's politically incorrect. What do they call it? Space metal? Or what is it? I thought it was something like graphite or something, but I no, I could be wrong. Um let me use this portion of the podcast to Google stuff. Uh, Apple, iPad, space, space gray. Yeah, space gray is what they call it. But it's interesting. Um, it's it's a nice color. It's it's basically like gunmetal. Let's get to Microsoft. Let's queue up that clip. Okay, so you want to hear the Microsoft clip? The well, scroogled? Let's, let's talk about it. Okay, here we go. Well, hold on. No, 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 no. Hold, stop. Okay. <laughs> let me let me intro into it. <laughs> okay. All right. So what is this? So so while we're on the topic of your your mini and all those kind of things, it it reminds me of all these advertisements that Microsoft has been doing lately. Have you? Oh, surely you've heard of the Scroogled campaign. Well, yeah, and the it's actually not a. I don't like the Scroogled stuff because I, I, I think they're giving too much. Uh, attention to the competitor, but the thing that annoys me about some of these ads is the actors they have in them, in them are actually pretty good, but they're they they're overly realistic. Like the one where you've got the teacher, this you know the the like the hipster 
teacher guy with the glasses and the beard, and then you mm-hmm. got the girl who's like an EMT tech in the ambulance. They're 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 over overselling the realism of yeah, I, mean, I got an iPad. And it's it's really awesome. You know, my kids can do that. It's just it's so, it's they try to be too real about it. It's like okay, uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know. It's but as far as Microsoft ads go, it's not bad. Microsoft's never been good at this. I got this uh, Google Chromebook as a gift for my mom. I brought it in today, hoping to get enough cash out of it to get to Hollywood. Hi, how can I help you? Hi, I'm looking to trade in this gift for a ticket to Hollywood. What makes you think it's worth that much? It's a laptop. (laughs) This is the Google Chromebook, a relatively new kind of device. Because Chromebook applications are web-based, when you're not connected, it's pretty much a brick. That's a major drawback. A traditional PC utilizes built-in applications like Office and iTunes that work even... Oh, iTunes. They called out an Apple program. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that he, that he mentioned iTunes in that. But is that true about the Chromebooks? That they're, if, you're not, if you don't have an internet connection, it's totally down? Nope, Maybe it's it absolutely is. false. Is okay. Yeah, so, so, yeah, Google spent a lot of time with Chrome and enabling offline support for a lot of programs. Now... The application, of course, has to be written to support that offline support or that offline offline mode. But it, yeah, it's certainly not true. There are things you can do with it offline, mm. even when you're offline. You see this thingy? That means it's not a real laptop. It doesn't have Windows or Office. Oh, <laughs> isn't that a little petty? <laughs> well, that's no. That's I like how that's the litmus test for whether it's a real laptop. If it has Windows and Office. Then it's a laptop. If it doesn't have both of those, then it's not a laptop. I, I could flip that on them. I could flip that on Microsoft and, and take their Surface tablet and go, see see this little Windows logo? That means it's not a real tablet. No, it's trying to be a little tiny PC, but it's yeah. not a real tablet. Without Wi-Fi, it doesn't do much at all. And when you are online, Google tracks what you do so they can sell ads. That's how you get Scroogled. Scroogled? What's a Scroogled? Okay, so if let's say you're using your full-fledged windows pc and you're using google does don't they track isn't that the same i mean google's not invading your privacy if you have a chromebook it's just doing its normal thing it has nothing to do with whether it's a laptop a chromebook a desktop it doesn't matter no it's it's really just the fact that you're using google services and and the fact that it's free and the, the way they're able to give it to you free is by taking your information and targeting you for advertising well yeah and if you you don't have to even opt into any of that. I mean, you don't have to give them anything you don't want. And also, Google will show you. I don't know. You you can go somewhere when you're logged in. They will tell you everything they know about you, and you can have them. You can tell them to forget. You know, like line out of veto, any of those things. Anyway, Google is always trying to find ways to make more money off your personal information. Yes. This Chromebook hardware makes it even easier for them. Not going to Hollywood, am I? Not with a Google Chromebook. Love the Google Chromebook. I mean, who who is that? That's what the old man. Pro? Is this so? Now, did they spoof the sh- or mock the real show, or is that the are these the actual people? Those are the actual people, and that's how okay, we actually. So talks. I just made fun of an actual person. Yes, you okay, did. So now, now I feel bad about it. Sorry. You should. Okay. Unfortunately, I can't buy everything, especially when it's not what it appears to be, and this is not a real laptop. I'm not buying this one. I don't want to get scroogled. Well, I was hoping the guys would take this thing off my hands, but I appreciate how honest they were. Scroogled. Who knew? (laughs) 
Boy, she sounds really defeated, doesn't she? Yeah. And and the thing is, like, this in in reality, that guy wouldn't have cared about any of those things he mentioned. What the only thing he cares about, because he runs a pawn shop, is what can I sell this for? He doesn't care if the person he's going to sell it to gets scriggled. Who cares? Right. Run a pawn shop. <laughs> anyway. and I don't know. Pawn shops aren't notorious for being in the PC market, are they? Maybe phones. I, I think they do Maybe do computers phones? nowadays. I, I think guess. so. I haven't been to a pawn shop in a while. My first experience with a pawn shop, um, I bought my first acoustic guitar. Well, my first guitar ever, but that was when I went into a pawn shop, bought my first guitar for like 250 bucks. It was a really crappy guitar, but... You got scruggled. No, I think <laughs> I guess technically I did. I I I didn't. I was just learning how to play. I was just a young kid teaching myself how to play guitar because I wanted to. And um, I, I eventually got better equipment as time went on, as I got better, and I started knowing what to look for. But yeah, that was my first experience with a pawn shop. Mm. So you're so you originally you got screwed at a pawn shop buying a crappy guitar, right? Pretty much. <laughs> But then you ended up but getting better. The, you know, but the, then you the ended best up getting, thing about buying you, you, a shitty on, guitar you, from a you ended up getting you ended up getting better equipment, and you got good at playing music, and uh, it all turned out well, right? Yeah, but I haven't told you the best part about it. You know what I did with that guitar ultimately? <laughs> <laughs> what What did you do with the guitar? I busted it. I I. I envisioned everything I could from no 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 I busted it in a good way you know the whole rock star mentality the 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 thing you always want to do with a guitar from watching tons of eighties music videos is take that guitar by the neck and just bash it on the ground and see it bust into a million pieces I've never wanted to do that that that's so disrespectful to musical <laughs> instruments not ones like that but you know what it was ultimately kind of a letdown because the everything kind of stayed intact the only thing that happened was like the face of it popped off. It didn't really break into a million pieces like they do on on the music videos. I was kind of disappointed. It wasn't. It wasn't very satisfying. It, it was satisfying in that I got to kind of bust it up, and it was fun. But you know, it, you, you didn't. I didn't capture that moment, that mental picture that I had when you slammed it. Did like a shard of wood come up and like shoot you in the neck or something? <laughs> no, I was fortunate enough. I wasn't okay. wearing safety goggles either. <laughs> safety goggles are not rock and roll. No. Well, maybe if you're Bono, he has like those big safety, yellow safety goggles on. And fake Bono. Can't leave out fake Bono at DreamForce. <laughs> Who's fake Bono? You didn't hear about that? No. Oh my gosh. Okay. So did you hear that Bono was at DreamForce? No. You didn't? Okay. So I, yeah, I saw tons of tweets and there were articles written how Bono was just walking around DreamForce. How did I miss Bono? Walk- so fake Bono's walking around DreamForce. Well, at the time, no one knew. So people were posting their, you know, he was posing for pictures with people and they, you know, everyone's doing their selfies with Bono and they, everyone was talking about how nice he was and, you know, all kinds of tweets. And then the next week, someone finds out this is, this is not the real Bono. <laughs> was he an impersonator or just someone yes, that? Yeah. Okay. Looks, it looked like him, had the, had the exact same glasses and everything. I think I'd be more impressed if it was just some regular attendee who happened to love Bono and just decided to go with it. <laughs> no, this was definitely an intentional Bono lookalike. Uh, Is it Bono or Bono? Bono. Bono. <laughs> oh. So learn your lessons from Microsoft. Don't get scroogled. Yeah. That's typical lame Microsoft marketing. They're just, you know, that just goes to show you that money can't buy you good 
advertising. It can't it can't buy you cool. You just have to have people that have taste in your organization. I've always kind of been confused by Microsoft when it comes to how they market their products. I mean, it it almost seems like they're trying in terms of their marketing to do what some of the other guys are doing, you know, with these kind of funny campaigns. Even when they released the Surface, when they were talking about that kickstand, how they really focused on on how it sounds like when you close it, it's 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 almost you get that same satisfaction of closing a high end vehicle. You know, they spent a lot of time on how that sounded and how that closed and the satisfaction you got from it. But it was almost like they were focusing on the wrong thing. It was like they were trying to be like Apple, who likes to show off how they f- show so much attention to detail with the way they manufacture their products. But Apple kind of does that throughout the entire manufacturing process. Yet Microsoft was concentrating on this one thing. They took this one thing and kind of beat it to death. And I don't know. It just always seems like they're trying to be like the other guys. But when they try to make that attempt, they do it really badly, really poorly. Well, do you remember when it was like a year or two ago when they hired, was it Jerry Seinfeld for a Oh for yeah. A campaign? I remember that. And that was just not funny. I was, wanted to like them. I really wanted to like those campaigns, but they were just bad. But this just goes to show you, I mean, any any of these PR or these ad firms will take your money. They'll take your millions of dollars to produce these ad campaigns. Yeah, but it's not like up, it's not like you hire an agency and they go off and they produce a commercial and before you know it, you see it on TV. I mean, someone no, I, someone is influencing it, these at Microsoft. It, no, it does, but it takes from from the company that's that's doing this. It it takes um, inspiration and a message and taste. And if you don't have that, sure you can go buy you can go pay a bunch of money to an ad firm, but they're just gonna they don't have a whole lot to work with. Um, and I think they'd admit to that. In fact, in an interview with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, um, it was one of those rare recent interviews where they were both on stage. And uh, I guess one of the things Bill Gates, I don't remember what the question was, but Bill Gates said, I wish I had Steve's taste. Yeah, that was, um, Gates and Jobs were there together, right? Right. Yeah. And they were complimenting each other. It was actually kind of a nice, you know, uh, yeah, it, was, it was a great interview. session. Yeah. Anyway, well, let's talk about, do you have any Salesforce stuff? Oh, of course. We've got the hackathon controversy that's still ongoing. Yeah. So are are you not kind of? I'm, I mean, it, well, there has there is some juicy new details, but yeah, boy, this is getting old, isn't it? Well, have you heard the the latest award winnings that they did to kind of salvage this? Well, tell me about it. Well, they've decided to give the top two teams uh, award award them a million dollars, basically. I guess because of so much controversy around the person that won, they decided to give the Second place person or a team also a million dollars. So they essentially kind of have given out two million dollars for the top two winning applications. The only problem is, is I think that number two application was a was done by something called health. I think healthcare.love or something like that. It, it's some kind of healthcare related product. I actually didn't really see too much about it. Um, but apparently, sales they're made their companies made up of members that are. Or Salesforce has some kind of really small equity stake in that company. So so they, they even couldn't get away from the controversy of that. So it just seems like they've just kind of been in this horrible situation where even though they're trying to make up for the horrible situation that they put themselves in, even this kind of carrot or whatever is, is kind of backfiring as well. Yeah. I'll just say it right now. My I have a conspiracy theory about this. I know surprise, you do. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> Which is, so so now this thing has cost them upwards of $2 million, right? Right. 
but could they have gotten this much publicity by going out and buying, paying $2 million for ads? No. I mean, this is one of those things. I mean, I, I really think Salesforce is one of these companies that, you know, no publicity is, what is it? No publicity is bad publicity, right? Yeah, but I don't think their intent was bad publicity. I, I think they're just making lemonade out of lemons in this case. Okay, well. I don't think they intended to create this controversy around the application. I think, I think if anything, if there is some kind of conspiracy, they thought they could get away with it. If, if they didn't see this coming, and if they thought they could get it, assuming this was intentional, like they, you know, picked some, you know, a company that was run by, you know, people who were recent Salesforce employees and they were just trying to get, you know, my theory, they're just trying to get the best story, which is totally, in my opinion, within their right. I don't even think that's a conspiracy. Um, but if you believe that, then, man, they they just, uh, they totally failed at that. Like, they, that's like total incompetence. And they, if they let it screw up this bad. That's what I'm wondering if this, I mean, they, they screwed it up so bad, it's hard to believe that it wasn't intentional. I don't know. I, I think it's possible that with this type of event, they did want a big story. They, they, they didn't want to leave it up to chance. So I think they possibly did have this application in mind whenever they, we're going to give out this million dollars. Um, so there may be some validity to some kind of conspiracy, but I don't, I think they, they thought they could get away with it. I don't think it was, I don't think they thought it would cause this kind of controversy. So, uh, value wag had an article called the biggest hackathon prize in history was won by cheaters. Um, pretty interesting. Um, one of the things it said was, uh, let's see, someone who worked high up. So they're talking about the company that won. Uh, which was what upshot, I guess. Yeah. Someone who worked high up at the company for almost a decade was not only permitted to to compete in the company's in-house contest, but was permitted to dodge the rules and won the grand prize. You know, where's your mediocrity? Sorry, meritocracy. Now, maybe it should be a mediocracy. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, of course there's never been, and there never will be a meritocracy, particularly when it comes to winning a million dollars from a software corporation. So as much as it might shock the sensibilities of the Silicon naive, the following makes total sense. Two Harvard graduates were given a million bucks by a million-dollar company, million-dollar company, aren't they? Or no, multi-billion-dollar company, where one of them used to work after cheating. Hackathons are often self-serving, too. It's big publicity for Salesforce, generates a faux-cool buzz factor within the community, which is what I kind of zero in on, and it provides a dead simple, lazy way of scouting talent. As one Hacker News commenter put it, they acquire the project and the employee is back at Salesforce again. Perfect, plausible deniability, and the money stays in the company. <laughs> so they give they give a million bucks to these guys, but then they turn around and buy them, and so the money just comes right back in. And they get the talent, and they get the buzz, and they get this... You know, it was a hackathon. Oh, it's cool. It's a hackathon. Salesforce got a hackathon. Hack them. Hey, that's a, that's a hacking app, man. <laughs> you know. I just, I just think they didn't know how to run this. I mean, <clears throat> some of some of the other articles written about this particular topic just kind of shred them over the fact that okay, but without, hang on, without the conspiracy, how many articles would you? I mean, right now, just go to just Google Salesforce hackathon, and ninety percent of the articles are about the conspiracy. They wouldn't have gotten near as much publicity without this. So I, I think I, I just I, think that's they, lemonade. Whether it was I, intentional I just think that's or not, lemonade. I don't, I don't. I really think it's just lemonade at this point. I don't I don't think Hey, here's the deal. When life gives you lemons, just say fuck the lemons and bail. I think you're right. That there wouldn't be this much stuff written about it if there wasn't some kind of controversy. But I don't think their intention was controversy. 
Also, and then this article finishes with, it's perfect, except Salesforce should have remembered that nerds are so adept at fucking each other over that they can usually tell when it's being <laughs> done to them. <laughs> well, of course, I've always kind of viewed these kind of hackathon things at, at any kind of conference as as being a way for me to develop something for free. And I've never agreed with that. The only, the only part about hackathons that I agree with is possibly the exposure factor of, of doing something, getting people to notice your code. But Salesforce didn't even allow that. They didn't have some kind of open forum area where you can go and see what applications people built and what they built. And the judges weren't walking around getting personal demos or anything like that. It was all, they were basically looking at the videos. I mean, there's plenty of articles written about how people noticed that no one even logged into their application. And I think that's because they just kind of looked at a video, decided if it was something they were interested or not, and went from there. And of course, Forbes has a a positive spin on this, which Salesforce has so much of the of the news media in their in their pocket here. But um, <laughs> another one of your conspiracies. <clears throat> well, in fact, here's so here's how this, how this article starts out. At its recent Dreamforce conference, parenthesis disclosure, Salesforce c- covered most of my costs to attend. I mean, they literally are paying. Whether they're on the payroll, like people people like Peter Coffey, right? Whether they're people that are literally on the payroll now, or whether they're people who work for supposedly legitimate news media, like Forbes and TechCrunch and whatever, um, Salesforce is paying these people. I mean, did you see? Well, no, um, no. Uh, they had hang on a second. Hey. They had a they had a round one of these round another like media roundtable at Dreamforce. It was this guy Ben Keeps, um, Robert Scoble, I think was there again. Um, uh, Steve Gilmore was there like this whole panel of people and I'm sure Salesforce paid them all to come out and do this at least this guy disclosed it I see very few disclosures like this but that, that's that's the journalist integrity that's not Salesforce Salesforce can pay 100 journalists to come and cover their event that doesn't mean that all those journalists have to do a, a scathing positive butt kissing review I, I mean I, I'm not saying there's necessarily I mean is it wrong for Salesforce to pay journalists to come to Dreamforce to well I mean, did they just I, I give know. them to like me, a free pass to the event or did they actually pay their hotel and flight and all that kind of stuff okay so the guy says salesforce covered most of my costs to attend to me i mean that probably means everything except you know the drink he had in his hotel bar one night or something i mean they probably paid they probably flew him out paid for his hotel wined and dined him you know goodie bags all kinds of i mean who knows what he walked away with i mean but the fact that they're just i mean why do you have to pay journalists to come to your event well, you shouldn't have to do just, that. That's Especially just, they shouldn't have to do that. Well, if I put my business hat on, it's good business to have people come and cover your event and give you some kind of publicity, whether it's good or bad. Now, whether that those reviews are good and bad is really on the journalist and their integrity. <laughs> my, if, my, if I was hosting a, a huge event that had two or 300,000 attendees or whatever the number ended up being, I'd want some coverage. I want people out there saying, hey, look at how all these people that are that are on the Salesforce bandwagon. They're here. They're ready to learn. They're 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 building stuff on it. They're doing stuff on it. I'd want that type of publicity, and I want to make sure that that people were there. They could cover and write about that. Now, where where it gets into a problem is whether or not you're actually physically paying them for a specific type of review. But but John, it, once you start paying, it doesn't matter. Listen, it changes. The, it colors the coverage. Well, I don't know. Oh, it, it again. It goes back to to journalistic integrity. The journalist themselves has to make that that call. Do you think the White House pays for people to come and sit in its? No, because they have no journalistic and... integrity. 
You and I have some sense of journalist integrity. We make quite a bit of money off of I have developing no and building Salesforce applications and, and customizations, implementations, yet we're not sitting here giving them a free pass on everything. See, I have no integrity, but I don't claim to have any integrity. <laughs> That's the difference. I have integrity. I make I make my my career on, on a lot of Salesforce stuff, but at the same time, I'm not going to sit there and give them a free pass on everything. There, there's room for criticism. There's room for for doing things better. Tell you what, let me let me see how let me tell you how this guy concludes his article. He he basically just writes about how uh, what Salesforce did with the hackathon with awarding another one million dollar prize to the second place. This is his conclusion. It's a good resolution. Pulling the prize from the initial winners would have been hugely problematic, but Salesforce has found a way to reward the moral winner of the event, if not the actual one. It's a good example of a vendor nimbly responding to a potential public relations fiasco and turning it around. Isn't it? If that doesn't sound like paid for (laughs) coverage for you, then you are naive. Oh, I'm not naive. I just, what else do you write? On a completely unrelated note, do you do, do you write and say too little, too late, Salesforce? Uh, they, on a complete, they're, they're, uh, hang on, they're attempting to to make up for can it. Can you hear me? Yes, I can, but I'm just trying to make a point. They're attempting to make up for it by <laughs> handing out another million dollars. That's a lot of money. That's two million dollars. So I got to say, that on a completely unrelated note, a a bowl of what appears to be. Chili cheese jalapeno jalapeno French fries just landed on my desk like five minutes ago, and is, gonna, is that your dinner? <laughs> no, I've already eaten. But um, I know you. You know, it's probably not fair of me to eat this. Um, and not share it. So this is what I have to offer. I'm, I'm going to eat it, and I'm going to let you uh, listen to it and and enjoy it with me. Hmm. <laughs> This is not happening. <laughs> you are actually eating on our show. Oh my gosh. That is good. Yeah, sour cream. Let me get a jalapeno. Do you think this is what people um, listen to the podcast for? No, I, I don't think we're listed under the food category. Mm. And even the professional food network shows, you don't ever, well, I guess, yeah, they, they do eat their food. And some of them do kind of get overly orgasmic about the food they're eating. <laughs> I got to say, this is a quality product. <laughs> mm. uh, are we going to start talking about foodies and, and how they're they're kind of overly into their food? But you're a bit of a foodie. I have no idea where this came from, by the way. It could be poison. Well, it's, You're, you're it's the conspiracy t- theorist. Salesforce could have had someone come over here, drop that bowl off, and you're eating it. Oh. Just to silence And you. my wife brought it in here, so they've got her on the payroll. That's right. Damn it! Because you're such a key figure. You lose! (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So, yeah. Journalists, have some integrity. Don't let vendors pay for everything. I don't have a problem with vendors paying. I'm just saying, don't let that influence your your writing. There's no such thing as it not. That's completely against all journalistic ethics. That's what integrity is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Integrity is not letting them pay you for anything. No. Yes, it is. Come on, man. No. Let let them wine that's, and dine that's, you. That's let, J them, let them do their song and dance. Let them get put their best foot forward. You don't but get you to take their money. The they facts can't buy and you. you write about the facts. That's what you're integrity compromise. is. You're compromised. It doesn't no, happen. You're only compromised <laughs> if you let it compromise. Sorry. We're human beings. 
It's it's personal Your choice. Only compromise if you let it compromise you. The only the only time it's it's horrible is that they're sitting there making you write with a gun to your head everything they tell you to write. Everything else is up to you, personal choice. Doesn't matter if they spend a hundred million dollars on you. It's up to you to write the truth. So if Salesforce is giving money to people to write about them, then you you just you trust what they write. No, no, no. We're not talking about Salesforce paying for a specific article that's favorable for them. We're well, talking I didn't say about it was. I didn't say we're talking it was. about just, favorable, no. friendly gestures that that should not influence you. That's what integrity means, or covers, includes. It is devoid of all that. All the money they spent on trying to wine and dine you, you still stick to the facts and you're honest. And who knows, maybe these guys really do love Salesforce and, and they believe in it and they believe they're writing something in pure of integrity. They're not supposed to believe in any of this stuff. They're supposed to cover it and analyze it. Depends. Anyway, Was it an opinion? I find your naivete cute. It's cute. <laughs> oh, it's not naivete. <clears throat> it's a difference in opinion. Okay. Um. What else do I have? Um, Talking about difference of opinion. Okay. Segway. <laughs> so smooth. Segway. We need a Segway clip. Segway. Anyways, what's your take on uh, platform as a service? Because I, I recently read some articles about platform as a service, and I think it was trying to stoke the flames uh, of about whether or not platform as a service is going to stick around. Maybe it's going to be a dinosaur. Maybe it's going to lead to something else, something new. And they use the analogy of um, uh, ASPs, application service providers. Um, and I believe that was a long time ago, around the early 2000s, when those came about. Do you remember those? Yep. Can you define them in any way? ASP? So it's like your hosted applications. Crusty old school. It's basically renting software. Yep. And interesting how that model kind of evolved into the platform as a service where you're actually building applications and hosting them. It's still, you're still kind of renting, subscribing to the actual application, but it's, it's a, it's a different model in that it's not someone else hosting the software, but you're, or is it? Well, I don't know if that model evolved in anything. I think it just died, personally. But there are some similarities to the platform as a service, isn't there? I, I mean, I guess there's some similarities. It's just like I said, okay, well, we can't rent you the software, but maybe we can build the software from scratch and sell you that instead. That's just so different, though. But anyway, is it is past dying? People are saying it's dying? Well, I, I think it's I think, strengthening. I think it's gotten so ubiquitous in the industry that people are starting to say, hey, maybe this is a fad. I mean, everyone everywhere is saying you have to be outsourcing to these platforms, outsourcing to the cloud, outs and have some kind of cloud and go to these vendors well, and not spend well, sure, their money but, on IT. Sure, but PaaS is a part of that. I mean, whether it's Force.com, if you believe that's a PaaS, that's another question we can talk about. Um, but Heroku, um, Elastic Beanstalk, is that what it's called? Elastic Beanstalk, Amazon's um, Cloud Foundry. Cloud Foundry, OpenStack. I mean, I think I think all these things are passes. Um, Google App Engine. Yeah. And I, a lot of them are doing quite well. So I don't think they're going anywhere. Who who says they're going somewhere? Well, I don't know that anyone's saying that they're going anywhere. I, I think it's just 
analyzing the fact that they're so popular right now and any anyone who's anyone in that industry is saying hey you got to be on a platform you got to be on these past services you, you you shouldn't be hosting your own clouds you shouldn't be building your own data centers these guys know how to do it better and that's all they do outsource to them you're going to save your, your company tons of money time in whatever well i you know i think it depends right that's the classic answer it depends um if you have very predictable and steady requirements as far as the computing resources, then it may be better to do either private cloud or not even cloud technology at all, because it may end up being cheaper. You know, whether it's as reliable, I think is another question. Well, I think that's um, part of the, the argument of this article is, do you really need <clears throat> to sign on with some of these? I don't know why I have a hard time saying PaaS. <laughs> So I always say platform as a service, but I always have a hard time saying PaaS, but... Is it PaaS or PaaS? I don't pass, know. PaaS? It, it's one of those words that everyone says differently, but... So so I think it's that's part of the argument is, do you really need this? Everyone's pushing it. Everyone's saying that to be to be successful, you really need to use these tools because they take a lot of the burden of... Or a lot of the financial burden and risk and all that kind of stuff away from you. But do you really need it? And you're right. It, the, the answer is it depends but how do you get to that depends when everyone in the world is screaming, Hey, you need this, you need this, you need this. I think you just have to answer it for yourself. And it's just, I think it's a case by case. Um, I think from, you know, for most of the work I do, most of my clients, um, it, they don't number one, generally have the ability to, to run it, it resources, computing resources on the, with the level of security and reliability that most of these cloud providers do. And their needs also are not predictable enough. So it's they save a lot of money by being able to scale up with Amazon, right, when they need to, but also then tear those resources down when they don't need them anymore. And they haven't invested in those. They, didn't, they were just renting them, right? So you rent them for a few weeks, a few months, a couple hours, depending on what the task is, right? And since you're not buying them, you're just renting them for when you're using them, it can end up being a ton cheaper. And also, it's not just price. It's also, you know, with Amazon or any of these providers, you know, these are all, they're all API driven. So you can automate all of it. You know, you can automate the deployment, the tearing down, the scaling up, the auto scaling, all that stuff. So there's a lot of value there besides just, you know, cost savings. But I think that's a big part of it. Like I said, the only time I think it makes sense not to do cloud technology is if you have somehow this very steady and predictable needs. But I, th I think that's so rare. I mean, I don't, I, in, in my work so far, I really haven't come across that. It has never made sense not to do, you know, since cloud was available, it's it's tended to be the right choice. I love seeing, I've heard of a lot of enterprise customers who might have started with something like Amazon and then moved on to creating their own private cloud. Netflix is a good example of that. They started out on Amazon and eventually started hosting their own servers. Well, I know for a fact Netflix is still very incredibly AWS-based. Really? Yeah, I had heard they moved off completely, but I could be. Oh no, no, they're. And matter of fact, they've been um, open sourcing a ton of their tools they've developed to work with Amazon and automate Amazon. Um, there's like Asgard is one. They've got some other tools that they've built to help that they've built for themselves to help them deal with and automate a lot of the with a lot of the AWS infrastructure. And they've open sourced a lot of that, like all the stuff that's not core part of their core value add. Their philosophy is they're trying to they're trying to open. I say outsource. I mean open source. They're open sourcing all that. 
Um, but yeah, they're still very much, you know, Amazon based. Hmm. Interesting. I'll have to look into that more. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting for them. And of course they probably buy enough resources. They probably have special custom contracts with, with AWS to get, you know, deals. And they probably also, you know, with Amazon, you can either get, you can either buy spot instances or you can reserve, you can basically commit to a certain, a certain level of resources and you get a better deal. And so I'm sure they do that type of thing to get, to get better deals. Um, but there's, you know, there's examples. Um, Marco Arment, he wrote a blog post that famously a month or two ago about how for what he does, AWS just ends up being way more expensive. And so he's much better off doing one of these, like buying a, a VPS at whatever, what are the slice host or whatever, whatever the cool VPS providers are or mm-hmm. hosting providers that you basically get your, you know, either your own virtual instance, but it's, it's not cloud. It's not scale or any of that kind of stuff. It's just, it's just a VPS or maybe even your own dedicated server. But for him, you know, he, like if someone who basically they know they need basically a server of a certain size can, can handle all their traffic, then it may be a lot cheaper just to do that. So I guess that's why I say it depends. End of discussion. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we done with that. Um, so I saw today that, uh, so Mark Benioff offered um, to Obama um, to fix healthcare.gov for free <laughs> and to run it for, what, five years? Did you see this? No, I didn't see it, but it didn't surprise me. I, I, for some reason, I had, had it in my head as soon as I started hearing about all these issues that Benioff would go up to, to Obama somehow because he's, he's a big donor and big supporter, and he's listed as one of their top donors so, so obviously he has some kind of line to him. So it wouldn't surprise me that Benioff would go up to him and say, hey, why aren't you using our stuff? You know? yeah, so, uh, so it says, Mark Benioff has offered to help Barack Obama fix his struggling online healthcare exchange for free. Um, that would be with report- an HP super paw. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about that. Um, the host of Sierra Media. You do better in partition. <laughs> the HP super paw. There you go. There it is. Clap. <laughs> Hello. HP Superpod. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he's offered to rebuild the entire healthcare.gov website and host it without charge for five years. Now, again, this is, I think, excellent PR by Mark Benioff because the government's never going to take him up on that, but he gets in the news for just offering it. It's just awesome. <laughs> this is classic Mark. They, they probably should. I, I think whatever they've developed for that site is obviously just a pile of shit. And they really should go to some something like Salesforce or Amazon or something. Oh, please, better you imagine, infrastructure to run. Could you imagine it. building this large thing in Force.com with Apex, no well, packages, every class in one namespace? I guess I'm thinking total more, mess. I guess I'm thinking more of the fact that Salesforce has a proven history of being able to run these huge multi-tenant systems with hundreds of thousands of users on the platform at the same time. They know how to set up the clusters. They know uh, how to that's, regionalize that's it. That's a different. That's di- I'm not talking about. Dimension. I'm not talking about running it on Salesforce and Apex. I'm just talking about their knowledge of how to run a large scale application across hundreds of thousands of users. Yeah. So let me let me be clear. I think Salesforce's engineers could totally do this. Yeah. They're smart guys, right? But I don't think they would use Force.com to do it. <laughs> Probably not. Salesforce, the platform Force.com might not be the right technology. But in terms of engineers and know how. People in Amazon, people in Salesforce, people in Heroku, people in and whatever are these 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 systems know how to do it, and those are the people that they should have gone to. So I said uh, Benioff's had to settle for dispatching two of his minions to the White House 
who he, who he says are providing coaching and mentoring. So literally, Salesforce has people at the White House coaching Barack Obama. A, this is a quote. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Silicon Valley <laughs> is a friend of President Obama's. And we're going to help the government get through this, Benioff told the Washington Post. That, that's, help- that's kind of what's so interesting about this whole whole issue is that Silicon Valley, Valley is definitely very friendly to to President Obama. And they've had countless, countless meetings and dinners and and whatever you want to call it, cocktails to talk about the industry and how the, how, how how they can do more and better. And Apple's even moved more manufacturing here, or at least, you know, assembly. So it, it's really puzzling that they would end up with this type of situation. Don't you think? I don't know. Um, or do you think he, it was just a bunch of back scratching that got them in the trouble? The government? Yeah. Very well, selected vendors that they wanted to make sure were taken care of and, and that they got them in trouble instead of going to the right people who had the right know-how. Yeah, I mean, the government, the way the bureaucracy is set up, they're incapable of doing projects this big. I mean, look at who won these bids to build this. I mean, they're, they are companies that are experts who have the legal staff who, who are experts at the bidding process. They're not great technology companies, but that's who wins. Yeah, that's a and great there, point. I mean, is there backtracking that goes on? And is there, are there political paybacks? I have no idea. Probably so, because that happens all over our political system. No, but that's that's actually a really good point. I mean, they, they could just be really good at putting together the right kind of bid and getting it out there. Although, well, I know for a fact, you've worked at a company, you've worked at companies before who at least a significantly huge part of their business was doing just that. Right, yeah. So you've, you've seen this stuff. You know how it works. I mean, there are people who are experts at just winning bids, and it has nothing to do with how good the technology is. Um, yeah, so it says, Benioff is one of many from the tech set. I like that. The tech set. <laughs> what is a tech <laughs> the set? The hell is that? I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's like, like, like a C-suite. chess set, some kind of I don't strategy know. chess piece thing. I don't know. But anyway, he's uh, who have backed Obama and lent their services for free on healthcare.gov. Isn't that sad, though, that we've got like half of Silicon Valley just offering they feel so bad, like, oh, my God, this is embarrassing. We'll, we'll fix this for free. Just please let us fix it, because this is embarrassing. We gave you all this money, and this is your signature legislation, and it's making it, it, the, the, for, it's making the entire progressive movement in the United States look stupid. Politics aside, I mean, even, you know, all of that aside, the politics aside, the fact that the United States is a technology-heavy country is having this kind of issue with with a with a website that can't support what fifty? It can't even support the fifty thousand that it's supposed to support. Is that right? At any given time, I I don't know what to believe. I mean, you hear I, I hear all sorts things. of numbers, yeah. But yep. it, it for some reason cannot support the volume that it needs to support. And a lot of this is just is not even signing up. A lot of this is just kind of browsing and logging in and getting access to the system. I mean, it's just it's very embarrassing from from well, a technology perspective and. I just don't know that. I mean, are we so big that it doesn't make sense for a government to try to run that? I mean, if you look at and and just keeping politics out of this, if you look at countries that have arguably successful, um, like nationalized healthcare systems, you know, Canada, England, you know, these are countries that are, you know, like what ten times smaller than, ten times less population. I just, I mean, there's a question on whether it works on our scale or not. I don't know. Maybe it could. But if it if it were to work better, we certainly would have to fix how the procurement and bidding system works, because it certainly does not work right now. 
I don't know that there's a good example of other countries that are doing it this way, though. Aren't most of them kind of universal coverage where there's really no sign up? It's just well, single yeah, payer. No, I agree. And it's a little bit different, but they still have to have systems, whether it's single payer or not. They still have to have systems to run this and they've been able to do it and we can't um, or we're obviously struggling with it. And, and it's new. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, when the when healthcare.gov first launched, I just um, went or well, I actually tried to sign up, couldn't sign up that whole story but i also looked at some of the code just on the front end and it was it was just atrocious it was so so poorly set up and it was terrible um it was a joke but yeah I, politics aside i think we can all agree it's a giant turd of a site yeah i mean hopefully they'll fix it i mean the, the big problem now is that a lot of people are losing their insurance right and the question is what how are they gonna what are they gonna be able to you know get insurance now um so hopefully for people who, who have lost their insurance and they need to get insurance, hopefully the system will, you know, get fixed so they can do that anyway. Well, more importantly, well, the people who need that subsidy, because I think anyone who lost their coverage can certainly go to anyone and ask for a quote. I think it's just more of they, if they qualify for that subsidy or not through the site. Is that correct? I don't know. Or actually, I could be wrong. The, the exchange is probably the only place you can get that better competitive pricing maybe i don't know i'm still covered um still I, have insurance I, so i'm not yeah i think if you qualify for subsidies then you have to go through the exchange to get those if you don't qualify you may be better off or certainly no worse off by just going directly to insurance companies or through a broker um what else you got well i saw an interesting thing today on um field history retention did you hear anything about that on salesforce nope so back in spring 13, they um, they started automatically deleting any kind of history you had that was older than 18 months. So normally, whenever you'd flag a field for um, field history tracking, they, they would they start... Are, they're automatically deleting your history? They're automatically <laughs> deleting your history. And I think that was kind of a stop the bleeding issue for them. I think they saw that the the storage was just getting astronomical because it doesn't count against your your storage limits. So Salesforce is kind of having to deal with that that storage requirement. And so what they did is they basically just started chopping off after 18 months all that data. Now were they are were they archiving it? No, like they were just getting rid of it. Okay. And but they were offering a carrot to those who actually needed to have it to to turn that automated deletion off. However, in researching the issue, I found that a lot of people were posting comments that, hey, I tried to contact them, but they were kind of making it really difficult for me to get that enabled. They just kept kind of giving me the runaround. So they're making it really difficult for people to, to actually turn that feature off. And, and so what they started piloting in this in this latest release or maybe coming up release, um, when is winter 14? Is that coming or is that past? That's coming. That's, that right? would be a long time away, right? It would be unless, January, well, February, I think, is when yeah. the winter comes out. Okay. So, so in that release, they're going to start piloting this new feature that lets you um, specify how long to keep that history. So you'll build to to say, hey, keep it for the for three years, keep it for two years, keep it for one year, however, whatever that number is. And so that gives people with or companies with a specific requirement of um, history retention how long they can keep that data. Interesting. Yeah, it's not cool to all of a sudden just say, hey, we're going to start, start deleting your history. 
And it's we're talking you know about what? like field history, Part- right? I mean, what how how much storage does it take to store a few strings as strings string values change? That much is true, but I I see so many people just use it not. I think they use it for what it's not intended for. They use it as some kind of way to keep track of people or or they just don't trust their users and they think, oh, they're going to screw something up. So I better turn field history tracking on so that I can restore it. So they're basically maxing out their field history limit, not because they have some kind of requirement to to see how this field changed over time, but because they don't trust their users. And, and so I, I find those type of situations... Um, Although it's it's a it's a function and feature of the application, so why shouldn't you use it for whatever you feel like using it? But yeah, so the problem is, is you can say, hey, you, what do you want to track? It doesn't cost anything to track things. So right. would you like to track nothing or everything or something in between? What are, what are they going to say? Well, and I think that's how it it's evolving. I think that's what the whole purpose of this new pilot is that it's evolving into that because I think they originally saw it as a way to, you know, track the history of very critical fields, maybe either for some kind of regulatory compliance or just because your business really depends on the value that's in in this field. Um, I think what ended up happening is more people use it for other purposes, um, such as just not trusting their users to be able to, to keep track of that data correctly. So does Salesforce, speaking of field history, <laughs> does Salesforce have a history of doing this type of thing or is this a kind of a one-off? Uh, history of what? Just like silently nuking your data <laughs> or just kind of removing features or or deprecating features or curtailing features you're asking me you're you're the the conspiracy theorist that tells me you that of the every time a new release comes out um you you know a guy or, or, or aware of this guy that's able to run all these tests and see all the different things that they've kind of silently changed of the api that they didn't publish are you saying you haven't been a victim of regression bugs with Salesforce? I have. I'm just I'm just surprised okay. that you're posing the question the way you did instead of stating it outright. It, it was non it was a non-rhetorical question. It was an honest <laughs> question, sincere. Um all right. Uh so I saw a funny article. Um No, we have was, no time for funny articles. Oh, what do you think okay. this is? All right, let's this wrap is a it up. Serious then. news show. Let's wrap it up. No, it wasn't funny. I don't know why I said funny. It was sad. Uh, but anyways, uh, called Salesforce pivots to uh, what is this internet? The internet of well, it says internet of things, but they didn't call it that. They called it internet of customers, right? But anyway, they pivot pivot to the internet of things and mobile. What took so long? What took and so, so long? Saying that you know they should have done this before, but it feels a bit like uh, they say lipstick on chicken. An attempt to assume mobile cred. Wait, long wait, 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 wait a minute, lipstick I, on chicken? Hold on, no. What, what, was this written kind of a, by um, uh, Sugar CRM? Because weren't wasn't their CEO infamous for calling Salesforce's uh, chatter lipstick on a pig? Well, a lot of what I think Dreamforce was widely characterized this year as lipstick on a pig, not by many news sources. But I don't the whole lipstick on a chicken. That's kind of that's not even the right metaphor. But anyway, um, but yeah, so it's an attempt to assume mobile cred long after it should have embraced mobile devices better than it has. Um, let's see. Uh, so they did this. Oh, oh, so they also tried to erase confusion around its dual force.com and Heroku pass strategy. So this is interesting. They have, they have force.com mm-hmm. and they have the Heroku pass, right? Right. Which, and it's always been a, that was always a weird, a little bit of a weird acquisition, but, and especially since they've kept it separate. And you know, my, my theory was they were just trying to, to gain some developer cred. I mean, cause force.com is not cool and apex sucks and the vision, the templating language sucks. It's, 
it's all based on 15 year old technology and except it's even worse than that now. And so I, my thought was, you know, the whole Heroku thing was like, Hey, let's, let's get into a technology that people actually like. Um, but anyway, so it says by launching Heroku one, a new Heroku targeting the Salesforce ecosystem. Yeah, I was confused too, but the plan is to push and the apex centric force.com for internal apps while Heroku one is for customer facing apps. And that's according to Heroku CEO, Todd Nielsen. Um, this makes some sense, but personal opinion, force.com fades away in a few years. No, I don't think so. Yes, please <laughs> fade away force.com. I'm so tired of working with crappy proprietary technology. I think, I think so happy. I think force.com will continue to, to exist and I don't think it's ever going to go away. It, it may oh. take a, a smaller, it might kind of, fade in the background a bit, but it'll still be there. I mean, it's got to chew up so much engineering resources at Salesforce to maintain their own, this whole stack of languages that are proprietary. They, they can't lean on open source for this. You know, they, they're having to do this all themselves, which, which, is why, which is obviously why they've struggled to, to maintain, you know, not only performance, but um, feature parity, tooling. It's all struggled. The, the, the clips plugin, the dev console, none of it's good. The language is not good. It's way too limited. No packages for one. And I will continue to talk about that one until they fix it. So the question I, I can't is, I hope that? they address the packages thing because I, I want to get your reaction to that because it, it has been something that's a long time coming, especially for large scale complex applications. I mean, well, everything again, in the same namespace is just hard to manage. If they're going to keep doubling down on proprietary, then they at least need to start fixing these things. And I hope they fix that as well. But I promise you, behind that are a hundred, if not a thousand other things. There's just, there's so much behind maintaining your own language. You know, it's not just one language, mind you. It's a set of languages and and technologies that is completely proprietary. And if they want to do that, then it's going to take a huge investment and I don't see them investing in that. They've really, I think they've starved some of those internal engineering resources and they've, they've put them on other things. The thing is, I don't, other, think, other I don't think they can incorporate Heroku-like technology on top of the platform as native, as, a, as part of the standard license without costing more. Either costing more per license or you having to get a completely separate um, license package. Because it's completely separate hardware and completely separate resources that they'll have to manage. I just think it's an uphill battle for Salesforce to continue to try to make force.com work and, and you know, the, the proprietary stack. I agree, I but mean, I, th- I think if anything, if, if it were to go anywhere, it would kind of be relegated to something like store procedures where you would still write your triggers in it. You would still do some, some low level stuff in it in, in terms of the data model. And then maybe they would push you to Heroku more for, for application level stuff. And I could, I could see that making sense. But I just think, again, I think it's an uphill uphill battle, both in terms of engineering, engineering resources, financial resources. And also, I think it by keeping it proprietary, they, they continue to shut out just a large amount of developers that just aren't interested because it's proprietary. Well, I think their kind of goal in recent years has been to try and abstract everything from developers in terms of the platform and, and try and make it as much point and click as possible. But I think they're realizing that that for some 
for some of their customers, they really need that development. They really need that power. That's kind of what brought them to the platform and, and to begin with. And they're going to have to start providing some tools for them. Again, I mean, there, no one picks force.com, but you know, the, no one who's not already a Salesforce customer and already invested in the Salesforce CRM platform, no one picks force.com to build apps on. No, but it's it's definitely a factor in pushing them over of in terms of which CRM platform to get and the fact that they can customize it and build additional applications on it. It's an integration play, not a best of breed play. Nothing Salesforce is doing, I don't say nothing, most of what they're doing is not best of breed, but it's the fact that you can get it all in one package. You can get the CRM, the support, the you know, custom you the custom development, all this you know, the um the exact target the data.com, all these is in one package. I mean, there's a huge value in that. Mm -hmm. That's why people pick Salesforce and the fact that they, you know, they've now proven that they can scale up. That's why people are picking Salesforce. They're not picking it because any one of these things is great. And, and there may be some of those things that are great that are best of breed. You know, I'm, I'm not in the marketing enough to know whether Radiant 6 is best of breed or buddy or whatever these things are. Um, but, but even those applications, they're not native applications. They're well, that's another. Uh, yeah, it's it's whether, not like Eloqua or Marketo yeah, no, or, yeah. so, or whoever else out there is jumping from their technology over to Force.com. Right. So, how well integrated is another another topic. But assuming that they are somewhat integrated, that's the value. Don't you don't you agree? That's the value of Salesforce is that you get all this stuff, and you and you can you invest in it, and you can continue to grow your investment and grow the value you're getting out of it because it's all integrated. I mean, that's that's what makes Salesforce great. I mean, that's why. You and I do what we do when it comes to Salesforce because it's producing that kind of value for all these people. But it's not its not because Apex is a great language because right. it's not. So if we're going to be building on Force.com, we'd, we'd at least like it to be built on either either really good technology that are, that are at least competitive or or let's just bring in the existing, you know, open source or, or open spec, you know, languages and technologies and things like that so that we can bring, so that, We've got these, so they are best of breed tools and best of breed uh, technologies. And we can do things like, um, you know, have our great tools, whether it's Eclipse or IntelliJ, and we, we're building, you know, we've got continuous integration and, um, but also just language level features, you know, a, an object system within that, that works right, uh, something that has packages. I mean, all these things, like something that is, um, is not dependent on a single company to, to continue to evolve and also deal with regressions because Salesforce, I mean, they've struggled with that. Every, every new release, there's major regressions and some of them are really, I mean, you might consider them nitpicky or whatever. You know, a, a certain system dot whatever method behaves slightly differently, but I'm sorry, that produces bugs in applic- in big applications, in real applications that can make a difference. And on Unfortunately, Salesforce, even though they've got a lot of success, a lot of customers, they're still small enough scale that they don't have the capability to do the broad testing that a .NET does, that a Java does, that a Ruby does, that a Python does, right? It's just not there. So I would, I'd rather see them bring in Heroku as the thing that you build apps for that are customer-facing or maybe even like internal customer, right? Like your internal users, Um continue to make it more native, even if it's not a big bang, even if it's just something that every Dreamforce or every release of Salesforce, the three time a year thing, you see it more and more integrated. I mean, that's a big win. And that keeps people like me happier and, and continuing to want to work in this ecosystem. And I think it also makes it more open to other people that are not in the ecosystem yet. 
Yeah, and I think for ISVs, that would be increasingly attractive to have a native branded application because it's on the Heroku platform. Um, so final, and by the way, this, so this article was by um, Barb, uh, her name's Barb Darrow, mm-hmm. which she's been, she's been actually, um, she covered Dreamforce a little bit, just I think from afar, and um, she writes some pretty interesting stuff. Um, she writes for GigaOM. Um, she wrote the past articles mentioning. Did she? Yeah, yeah, she's so she's she's cool. I like her. Um, so she says Salesforce also cordoned off some of its infrastructure into an HP converged hardware-based cloud reserved for the biggest of big customers. Of course, that's the HP Superpod. Um, and it says this helps Salesforce.com tweak Oracle and also highlights the sort of weirdo in industry collaborations that usually don't amount to a hill of beans as far as customers are concerned. All that vendor. Mutual backscratching is mostly annoying. Close quote. Isn't that what I was just saying? This is not about customers at all. It's about vendor backscratching. It's about Meg Whitman saying, hey, Mark, we've been, we've bought 50,000 licenses for like the past five years. I want something. I want to pay back. I I want something for that. We're not just a regular old customer. We're bigger than that. And it's annoying. I agree, but I don't don't (laughs) think the concept of having an isolated environment like that was purely based on eight on back scratching. I think they had a need to do it and HP came in to fill that need. And you know what? When we talked about that last week, another thought occurred to me that we didn't bring up. And we talked about how maybe this impacts the relationship with Oracle, but maybe Oracle, maybe they did go to Oracle and the Oracle said, no, we want nothing to do with that. Could be. I just think Salesforce has to spread their love around. I think not only do they have Oracle they've got to deal with, because they, so Salesforce, we talked about this, they recently have just come to the realization or conclusion after the failed attempt to go to Postgres that they're stuck with Oracle, right? And what do you do when you're stuck with someone? Well, you make the best out of it, right? right. Okay, hey, we're st- I'm stuck to you, so let's figure out how we can make deal with this and and mutually benefit each other. That's what that was, but they've got the same problem with HP. Matt, one of their biggest customers ever, right? And you got to keep them happy. You got to give them a reason not to go somewhere else. But this, again, this is just how, this is just business. That's how business is done. It's just, again, as a, as someone who is either a tech nerd or a customer that you see it as, okay, this really does not benefiting customers. It's just annoying. It's like, cause you see it happening. It's, if your eyes are open at all, it's fairly obvious. Yeah. But it, um, it is one of those things that doesn't affect the average user. I mean, it's only going to affect a very small 1% of Salesforce's customers, if that. So it's one of those things that, yeah, it exists. And yeah, maybe there's some back scratching going on there, but it's we're not going to be talking about it a month from now. So we're running crazy long, but I have one more thing. I don't know. If, do you have more stuff? Or are we wrapping no, up? No, go for it. Okay, so I got one more thing, which is, did we talk about Salesforce's, um, well, I guess it was, was it their Q3 results? Yeah, it would have been Q3, right? I thought we did. Well, this was, I think, new. So I don't think we talked about, I think we, t- so last time we talked about, it was Q2 still. We just, we were. Oh, yeah, you're story. right. Yeah. We were, I think that's just because we were just starting the podcast and it was their most recent K, well, no, what is it? 10 Q? Yeah. Um, but no, so they just closed Q3 or they reported the results. Um, and so they're, they had, a, they lost $124 million, which I don't know if that's up or down. I think it's actually, I think it's narrowing a loss a little bit. But also, so Workday lost, uh, I think, $17 million and NetSuite, remember good old NetSuite? Yeah. <laughs> lost $48 million? I could have that backwards. Um, but anyway, the, the story, and, it, and I think I alluded to this uh, 
a little bit on one of our previous episodes, but just how the question is now is like, why is SaaS not profitable? Like Salesforce has been around for 15 years now. Do you realize that? Yeah. Can you believe that? I mean, 1999, what, 14 years. I mean, almost 15 years. I've been doing this for about eight or nine years. So. Yeah, and they've been around for 15 years. And the, and so the question is, you know, is the, I think Wall Street's starting the question, is the, what is wrong with the SaaS model? Like, what does it take? I mean, how many billions do you have to get to? Or how long do you have to be in business? How long do you have to keep, you know, quote, investing before you're going to make money? Um, so yeah, so Salesforce lost 124 million, um, a net suite and Salesforce both saw operating margins deteriorate year over year. Ooh, so we're going backwards. Um, Workday enjoyed some improvement, but remains the worst performer of the three Poor Workday. <laughs> um, so yeah, so here's a, a thing I highlighted. If a web-based approach is better for corporate IT, and in many cases it probably is, then we should be able to discuss it without diversionary references to Buzzy consumer technologies like mobile and social. If enterprise cloud companies have a clear advantage, then their first priority should be to explain to investors why a superior product requires inferior inferior margins. The flip phone might be dying, but it's not because Apple took a loss on the iPhone. Apple's always made money on the iPhone. That's a, that's very true. Um, yeah, further down, choose what you want has deteriorated into pick your side. So the rise of yeah, so the rise of proprietary app stores like Force.com only highlights the Napoleonic ambitions at play as firms compete to become platforms rather than equal citizens in the world of corporate IT. Interesting. Yeah, we we could we could certainly dive into that in, in much more detail. I mean, that kind of goes back to. I mean, we're basically out of time now, but it's interesting, and we, we should talk about that in uh, you know in the future. Yeah, I think it's worth kind of expanding on that and maybe digging up some more different thoughts and views and kind of collaborating on that and see, see what comes out of it. Cause it's, it is an interesting topic cause it's not just Salesforce. I mean, Amazon, they, they still haven't, they haven't still haven't made a profit, have they? Or if they have, it's, it's it, no Amazon it's every other quarter. Yeah. It's, it's been very spotty. And, and I think people also question Amazon. Um, and it's also weird. How do you, you know, I got people like Mark Benioff and Jeff Bezos and now they, these are guys who both were successful before, I think, their current uh, endeavors. And they're both smart guys, but they've literally become billionaires off of losing money, which is interesting. That is interesting. Um, but then this, uh, so this article compares them kind of to Oracle and SAP. So it says, which, you know, Oracle and SAP have, they've both embraced like cloud distribution, or they're, they're starting to embrace cloud distribution models, um, slowly but surely, right? And and not necessarily, you know, you can question what how pure their cloud is, but whatever, beware of the false cloud, remember that. <laughs> um, but anyway, despite all rhetoric to the contrary, the big difference between these groups, between like the cloud and the, the old guys, is now something that we're not talking about, which is the fact that Oracle makes money and Salesforce does not. Yeah, all good points. And what's interesting, you know, Salesforce hasn't proven that they have a sustainable business model, but companies continue to invest so much money of into into their own into developing their own business processes right and how they're how they're running their business they're investing that all into salesforce and what happens when salesforce goes tits up because they don't they don't make money i I well i think obviously because they're not turning that profit you know they're constantly having to chase (laughs) that that new subscription 
They're constantly having to bring in that new customer. Well, and look at the acquisition binge. I mean, how much does that cost? Billions. And they keep, they keep investing in all these acquisitions and, you know, I don't know how much, you know, $100 million parties every year and they're not making money. And they already have like 70% of the customers and they already, they're already at $5 billion a year. I mean, I, if I had a big business and invested and had invested a lot in Salesforce, you know, all my had all my business processes and all of the code and everything that runs my business, had that invested into Salesforce, which, by the way, completely proprietary. Everything I've written in VisualForce, everything in Apex, everything in all the formulas, it's all proprietary. You cannot take that and go anywhere. That's kind of troubling. I mean, that's kind of the stuff that keeps you up at night. I still think there's more to that story that we need to figure out. I mean... Yes, they're not profitable, but a lot of it maybe is because of all the acquisitions they've been doing, a lot of the putting back into research and development. I mean, I I just really think we need to see where that money's going and and kind of give it that extra thought. I need a drink. How about you? You need a drink or you have a drink? I have a drink, but I need a drink. Yeah. So, (laughs) well, what are you drinking? So there's a story behind my drink. I always have a story. Oh, are you going to drag this one out? I am going to drag it out. It's all I can do. I, I, I want to talk about my drink in a way that, that tells a story. We're, we're only at an hour and 40 minutes here, so go ahead. <laughs> Fine. It's a mint julep. I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> that, so that's a, that's a pretty classic drink. What, do you have an interesting story? or No, it just, just my reason for picking it was interesting, I thought. I, I, I remembered that um, I was trying to come up with a drink for, for, for tonight, and I thought, one drink that was memorable was we were at uh, Kenny's uh, Smokehouse. Is that what it's called? The barbecue? The barbecue place, yeah. Yeah. It's really awesome. We need to go back there. Yeah. Maybe next week if it's not icing. But um, I, I, I think the last time we went there, I'd ordered um, something called a – it was a Kentucky something. A Kentucky Mule, I think is what it was. And it was kind, it reminded me so much of a mint julep because it had – it was like mint, it was bourbon, it had lime, and I think it was ginger beer, which I'd never heard of and have no idea what it is. But it was in a copper mug and everything, and it was the mint was just really prevalent in it. Um, and so I wanted something like that. And so the easiest thing I could do to, that would be similar to that, since all I have is bourbon, mint, sugar, water, which is all the ingredients you need, um, that's what I put together and put in. But since you made me just kind of come out and say it, wasn't as yeah, fun. I'm so mean. I know. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so that must be a play on the Moscow mule, right? Yeah, I think we talked about that when I ordered it. And yeah, it was it was a play on that except with, with bourbon. I think the Moscow yeah. is uh Oh yeah, it's vodka. Vodka, right. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And ginger beer, in my experience, ginger beer, there's actually no alcoholic content content to it. It's um it's just a generally a high quality ginger ale. It's just ginger ale. Um, but sometimes they call them ginger beers. Usually the fancier ones call them ginger beers. Kind of like root beer. Now is a, uh, is a mint julep not a, I always think of it as a summer. Is it not a summer drink? Yeah, it's a summer Southern drink. It's, I actually did try to do some research on it to learn more about it. And apparently it was something early on. They drank quite a bit in the morning. Well, why not? Right. Maybe, maybe the mint was like freshen your breath and everything from morning it's, breath. I don't know. And I also think of, that's the, that's the official drink of like the, um, 
those horse races, right? Yeah. Like the Kentucky, what's it called? The, no. Yeah. But I, th- I think it's, I think mostly women drink it <laughs> at those places. Like, oh, a, I don't know. I don't know. You always see some, some fancy old lady with their hat and their mint julep. <laughs> yeah. It's like, uh, Kentucky thing. But yeah. I don't know. I always think, I, well, I guess because it's mint to me and mint is like a refreshing thing. So I think of it as a, uh, a summer drink, but I could be wrong. Who knows? And it's traditionally served in a silver cup. So that's actually similar to a Moscow mule because the Moscow mule, doesn't that come in like a copper cup usually? Yeah. The one I had came in copper. I'm not sure if that's traditional or not, but it was copper. It was copper. Yeah. For a Moscow mule, I know it is. Um, anyway, so I am drinking a, uh, my wife made this for me. It's called a brandy crusta or crusta. I don't know if it's, I don't know what that means. Um, it says it's invented in antebellum, New Orleans. Um, but it's got, it's cognac. So again, I've got this good cognac that I'm, I've been enjoying. So we'll use some of that. Mm-hmm. It's got cognac and I guess Grand Marnier and some bitters and some orange or something, but, uh, it's good and tasty. And so I'm going to, I'm going to make you sound like an alcoholic because this is not your first drink of the night, is it? You had I, some, you had some, uh, I, fancy I coffee. The I played the fifth. You had some fancy coffee, didn't you? I I may have had an Irish coffee or two. <laughs> and the only reason I know that is because I, or it's stuck in my head is because I, I really don't like warm alcoholic drinks. It, it just kind of, every time I take a sip of it, that alcohol just kind of gets into all my sinuses and I just can't drink it. Hmm. You know, like the feeling of warm things going down your throat. <laughs> <laughs> what? You had to take it there. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> <laughs> the Irish coffee, of course, it's it's topped with cream, right? Right. It floats on the top. Yeah. Look like I had some cinnamon in the picture. Yeah, cinnamon and uh, some some ground nutmeg. It was good. You know me, I can't do anything half-assed. I've got to do it no, like, perfectly. You, you, yeah, yeah you got to do all go gourmet on us on everything. All right. I think we're done. We're done. And to that, good day, sir. Good day, sir.